0: This morning, I'd like to have you turn again to the book of Proverbs. We're going to kind of be all over the place in Proverbs, so I don't have to necessarily... I guess if you want to open it someplace, open it up to the last chapter, chapter 31. That's where we'll probably land after we get through all of this. But as you know, we have been dealing with the aspect of focusing on learning the Bible. And we've been dealing with different aspects to uh, uh, bring you through the Word of God, book by book, opening up and showing you all the as- under- ways to understand it. Kind of laying the Bible out book by book. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we got into the got into the what I call the wisdom books, and uh, we began to show you how each one of the wisdom books. And there's five of them. Really, uh, really form the foundation uh, for all of the Bible. I guess if there's any book, and last week, you know, we looked at the book of Psalms. And uh, the book of Psalms we talked about really showed you the heart of God. And uh, the book of Proverbs is going to show you the mind of God. And I I don't know if there's any book in the Bible that probably more (coughs) is the foundation of the Bible. It's the book of Proverbs. There's one book in, in the Bible that I wish I could just get down that I just totally understood it and memorized it, and could, had a total recall, every principle in it, it, w- it would be the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, to me, has always been much like the book of Romans in the New Testament. But even more than that, the book of Proverbs really um, forms the baseline for all truth. Everything else in your Bible, and I know I've said this about all five wisdom books, and it's true, but everything else in the Bible... Every other, every other book in the Bible, every other concept in the Bible, everything you're going to go through the Bible and study, uh, wherever in the Word of God, is always going to come back to the baseline of the book of Proverbs, uh, for it forms all truth. And what it does is it shows you how to keep your heart toward God by getting God's mind. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the key verse in Proverbs uh, is found in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. And to me, you know, uh, this is the, really what the book is all about. And it says this, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Father, we thank you and praise you today. Help us focus on the task before us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for those that are here today. We pray that they may leave today with instruction and understanding in the Word of God. And we just trust you, Father, for all that you do for us now. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. As I said, the Bible says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. To me, that's the key verse. Because the number one thing uh, that we have to deal with in this world are the issues of life. It's the thing that we all face. It's the number one fundamental issue we've got to deal with. And the Bible says that uh, they all come out of your heart. So if you're going to uh, get these things straightened out, you're going to have to get God's heart. And God's heart, we saw last week, is the book of Psalms. Once you get God's heart, the next step is to get God's mind. And uh, once you f- understand what God feels about things, then you want to see what God says about things. And Proverbs, to me, is the most important book in all the Bible on the issues of life, because it shows you how to get God's mind. Uh, and I say this many, many times. I've said it, you know, that the job of every Christian is, is to simply uh, make God's opinion, uh, your opinion on everything in life. It's the book of Proverbs that you use to do that. Where Job deals with the sufferings in life and explains it and defines it, Proverbs deals with the cause of effect in suffering. It shows you why things are the way they are from God's standpoint. When you come through the book of Proverbs, you continue. Remember I told you when we started the wisdom books, I told you that the whole wisdom books are built around two men. And literally the whole Bible's built around those two men. One's a wise man, one's a foolish man. The wise man is a man who finds out who God is and what God wants him to do and does it. The fool is someone who, who never finds it out or never does it and never really becomes uh, what God wants him to be. And uh, I guess not only is the book of, the wisdom books cover that, you find that man throughout all of the Bible. You find the Abrahams and the Lot, the Esau's and the Jacob's. The Judas's and the, you know, the John's. You find it everywhere you go. And then that's also true in life. Life basically breaks down. The issues of life basically breaks down into two concepts. Those who do what the Word of God says and those who don't. And it's as simple as that. And it's on that concept that you begin to understand how the book of Proverbs really uh, lays itself out. But in the book of Proverbs, we see the continuation of the defining of this wise man. We find in the book of Proverbs more information on him. Where Psalm shows you that he's blessed because he walks with God, where Psalm shows you his hard attitude toward the Word of God and God, and that's why he's a wise man, the book of Proverbs begins to detail it. The book of Proverbs tells you what a wise man is. He says in 3, verse 35, that a wise man will inherit glory. He says in chapter ten, verse eight, that a wise man receives commandments. He says in Proverbs chapter eleven, verse thirty, that a wise man wins souls. In chapter twelve, verse fifteen, he says a wise man hearkens to counsel. In chapter fourteen, verse sixteen, he says a wise man departs and fears and departs from evil. In eighteen fifteen, he says he seeks knowledge, and in fifteen seven, he says he disperses that knowledge. And in chapter 29, verse 11, the Bible says that he guards his tongue. Uh, All those are a mark of a wise man when it comes from the Bible's definition of what a wise man is. And let me just say, you could take those eight things that I just gave you, and you could spend the rest of your life going through the Bible, focusing on them and studying it out, uh, what being wise with God and a wise man as far as God's definition of it is. Then in the book of Proverbs, they also continue to define the foolish man. Where we saw in the book of Psalms, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. We begin to see the baseline now and the definition and the defining of what a foolish man is from God's standpoint. A foolish man in chapter 1 verse 7 despises wisdom. In 10.18 he slanders. In 14.4 he mocks sin. In 1710, he uh, uh, resists punishment for correction. In 1724, his eyes are to the ends of the earth, always looking for something to satisfy. In chapter 20, verse 3, he meddles in other people's business. And in chapter 26, verse 11, he's like a dog that returned to his vomit. And in chapter 28, verse 26, the Bible says that he trusts his own heart. And the Bible begins to show you now and begins to lay out in the book of Proverbs what it really takes to be a wise man and a foolish man. Now I'm going to give you a breakdown of the book of Proverbs here uh, with all I've said in mind. And I'm going to begin to show you how easy this Bible really is as far as breaking it down and understanding it when you get into the concepts it's quite a little bit more. And, and you've got to be patient with me this morning because when I started this outline, and I always do it on Monday morning, I can't wait to get down there and get to work. I give the rest of my day on Sunday to get my brain cleaned out and, and from everything. And then Monday morning, I start to try to lay this thing out. When I started to lay this thing out, I wound up with ten pages of notes. I finally got it down to five. And um, so you're just going to have to bear There is so much to say about the book of Proverbs. I have come to the conclusion that all I'm going to try to do today is to try to show you an excerpt of what the book of Proverbs is. I'm going to try to show you everything that it will do for you. There is no way that I'm going to be able to show you everything that is in it. And I'm not even going to try to do that. But let me give you a breakdown. Really, the breakdown is the key to the book. And I've said this before, so this should be familiar to some of you. You've got uh, 31 chapters. Chapter 1 through chapter 7, you're going to find that each one of those chapters starts out with the phrase, my son. I think one of them says, hear ye children. But every, the first seven all begin to function and talk about uh, my son. In chapter 8 through chapter 29, you deal with the, uh, the issues of life. The issues of life are uh, incredible concepts, verses, that really detail out for you everything that God thinks about every subject. And I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm talking about not only your walk with God in the, in, the, in the major things in life, but it tells you how you should prepare your heart before you go over to eat and sit down to somebody's house for a meal. I mean, it's incredible, all the details it has. And um, then chapter 32, chapter 31, you have the end result. You have the end result of both people. You have the end result of the foolish man, and you have the end result of the wise man. Now, in the book of Proverbs, we find a new addition to that. Not only is there a wise man and a foolish man, but now we find there's also a wise woman and a foolish woman. And we find uh, this beginning to unfold itself. And the reason why we have that is because you know that Israel is a picture of a man, yet as God's son, yet Israel is a picture uh, of a woman, as a virgins, plural. And you know that also the body of Christ is likened to a male, God's son, and yet at the same time the Bible says we are a chaste virgin. So we have both aspects of that. And you're going to find that that breakdown, chapter 1 through 7, chapter 8 through chapter 29, and chapter 30 through chapter 31, will really help you in understanding what you've got and what you're dealing with. You're going to find, as I said, in chapter 1 through chapter 7, where he opens up each chapter with my son, or hear ye children you're going to find in these first seven chapters that every chapter deals with what will God will give you from that Word if you do what the Word of God says. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, My son, hear the instructions of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Now, my son, doctrinally, is the nation of Israel. You've got to keep in mind, and I'm going to give you now the doctrinal, the inspirational, and historical laying out of this book, You've got to understand that my son, doctrinally, is a nation of Israel. He is writing from a Jewish standpoint, giving the nation of Israel, where the Bible says that there are ten virgins, five are wise and five are foolish, Matthew chapter 25. And he's writing to them, telling them, and laying out for them, doctrinally, when he gives my son instruction, it's a picture of the nation of Israel. Obviously, historically, we know that it's one of Solomon's boys. Probably Rehoboam who turned out to be one of the biggest fools in all of the Bible. But inspirationally we know that when he says my son in the first seven chapters, he's talking to you and me as God's child. Now what you've got here, what you've got is instructions in the first seven chapters, God telling you what you want to get out of the book of Proverbs. He details it before he ever gets into the body of it himself. He's giving you so much information that your brain will go into overload. He's laying that thing out in every aspect. The book of Proverbs is one of those multi-dimensional books <coughs> that just are quite incredible. Not only is he saying, my son, talking doctrinal Israel, not only is he historically talking to Rehoboam, Not only inspirationally is he talking to you and to me. Now, he said, My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. The instruction of thy father would be the New Testament, the law of thy mother would be the Old Testament. Showing you the complete canon of Scripture, Old Testament and the New Testament. And, of course, the instructions of a father being the New Testament, the law of thy mother being the Old Testament. But with that, we find a, a, an incredible concept that goes deeper than that. Because we also know that this, my son, is a picture of instructions instructions uh, to us as Christians. And that great concept in the book of Proverbs uh, it sets up the foundation for, for raising your family and training up your children. Now we have talked about this off and on as we, uh, things come up. And I know that many times I get questions from you and many of you young pe- parents in here are raising your children and training up your children and you're trying to do what's right with them. And, and I, we have an obligation and a role to help you uh, to do that. But you're going to find here that uh, the book of Proverbs, without a doubt, is the, is the baseline for raising and training up your children. It is filled with principles on training up kids, and many of the principles are definitive verses. We've talked about the concept of definitive verses, verses that define everything else wherever you find it. Not only is the book of Proverbs the foundation baseline for all truth in general, but it's also the baseline for for everything that takes place. In fact, when it says, my son... Uh, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother, I know that from a doctrinal standpoint, it's a picture of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But when you look at it closely, it says the instruction of thy father and the law of thy mother. You have there the two roles of of the parent, the mother and the father. The father's role is defined there, and the mother's role is defined there, and that's where it starts. And then it begins to go from there. It's an incredible concept. In fact, if, if you would read any good books on raising children or training children, and you would, we would read those books uh, from a secular standpoint, and there are some secular, I like the secular books much better than like the Christian books. Because the Christian books are just totally off the wall. With the secular books, not all of them, but some of them, you find some good hard data that is absolutely true, whether the guy is saved or not. And you got to be able to pick through it to know what you're reading you know, and what you're dealing with. But what I'm saying is this, they'll tell you, and this is true, they'll tell you that a child, when he begins to grow, goes through from age six months, eight months, up to time that he's 12 years old, he's going to go through a growth process. He's going to begin or she is going to go through a process where you as a parent need to understand what they are and what they're experiencing. It's the book of Proverbs that shows you that. In fact... Uh, I've got several books at home, and I had to marvel at this when I saw it. They broke it down from, from the 6-month to the 4-year-old, and then from 5-year-old to 10-year-old, and the 10-year-old to 12-year-old. Now, those age brackets may or may not be, you know, every child is somewhat different, but I, I couldn't believe when I started to see the thing that they were talking about, it struck me. It struck me that in the first six verses of Proverbs chapter 1, you have broken down for you nine things. And it's nine things that the Bible will do for you, uh, or the book of Proverbs will do for you uh, as a Christian. And it's nine because it's the number of fruit bearing. And he says that the book of Proverbs, first of all, is to know wisdom and instruction. It's to give young men knowledge. It's to receive instruction of wisdom. It's to teach us justice, judgment, and equity. It's to give subtly to the simple. It's to uh, uh, perceive the words of understanding. And it's to give the young men discretion. Let me tell you this. The book of Proverbs, based on what I just said, in your life as a Christian, when you begin to put the Word of God into your life, when you begin to put the book of Proverbs into your life, and you begin to do... Take that first step to become the wise man that God wants you to do. In the process of your spiritual growth, what you build into your life, or what I should say the book of Proverbs builds into your life, is a value system. A value system of understanding things that that understand where God is at. Now, when you have a child... And you're training up that child. And I'll sit down with any parent that is trying to do a good job with their children. And I'll show you how to, I can't give you this thing in detail this morning. But the book of Proverbs is so extensive. But I'm telling you, when you look at this thing, these nine things break down into the exact same age groups that you need to be looking at training your children in as they grow up. From six months to four months, it's one thing. Justice, judgment, and equity. When they get to the point when they're five years old to ten, you teach them to know wisdom instruction, you give, them, you give the young man knowledge, and you teach them to receive instruction and wisdom. And by the time they're ten to twelve, you're now giving subtlety to the simple, you're teaching them to perceive the words of understanding, and you're giving that young man, that young lady, the most important quality you can teach them, and that is giving them discretion. You know what discretion is? It's a value system. It's to know what and when to do this and when not to do this. It's the ability to look at life and say, life is choices. I'm not going to make that choice, but I'm going to make this choice. That value system comes in because we as God's people, in our own lives, God teaches us from the Word of God and gives that into our lives. The book of Proverbs is the greatest understandable book in the Bible that gives you and me God's value system. It's that same process. It's that same process, he says, the instructions of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. It's the same process that a father instructs and a mother holds the law and you take that concept and you build into your child by training them a value system based on judgment Judgment and equity, and then knowing wisdom instruction, knowing knowledge, understanding the instruction of wisdom, it to simple, perceiving the words of understanding, and finally, discretion. The older your child gets, the less restrictions you should have to put on them. If you're doing your job, and I'm telling you, Mom and Dad, this as you're raising those little kids right now, you need to look at that concept. We're going to talk about it, because the book of Proverbs is filled with it. The older they get, the less restrictions you should have on them. Why? Because if you've done your job correctly, they are perceiving, they are have discernment, and they are understanding things now because of the natural process. It's the same way in your life. It's no different. It's the same thing in your life and my life. The older we get, the more God trusts us with. The more God takes the restrictions off. The more God allows us to do. Why? Because we get the bottom line fundamental concept in our lives, and that is discernment. Being able to use discretion and understand what is all going on in the Word of God and applying in our lives. So you're going to find in chapter 1 through chapter 7, the book of Proverbs gives us as Christians incredible things. I'll tell you something else it does. Not only does it form the baseline for everything in your life and my life and training up our children, but it puts the the three necessary ingredients in your life and my life we have to have to survive on planet Earth. You've heard this one before. The first thing the book of Proverbs does, it gives you knowledge. The second thing it does, it gives you wisdom. And the third thing the Bible says that it does, it gives you understanding. Now let me just talk to you about this for a moment. We know that knowledge is facts. Everybody amasses knowledge. Everybody learns things. You learn it from school. You learn it from reading. You learn it from whoever, whatever. And as you grow in life, you get a job. You begin to exercise You know who you are. Then you begin to come to the point where you have wisdom. You understand that wisdom is facts applied. But I'm telling you this understanding defined from the Bible has nothing to do with knowledge or wisdom. It's the ability to take knowledge and wisdom and then through understanding, see how God is doing what He's doing based on what the Word of God says in the day and age that you live. We all like to listen to our our radio talk host, probably most of you from the conservative side. You like guys like Rush Limbaugh. I like to watch Bill O'Reilly. I like Fox News. I like it, uh, but you got ABC, NBC, CBS, you got all the rest of them, Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, and what these guys, whether you agree with their political position or not, what these guys do is simply this they take knowledge, knowledge is facts. They get it streaming into their news media uh, faster than you can even even think. And it comes in. Then they have a whole political staff that analyzes it and takes it apart, puts it together, forms forms it into facts. Because of their vast knowledge of doing it for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, they now can pull other facts from other places. And when they come on television, they give you a presentation of facts based on the years of experience and wisdom and give you some kind of palatable, understandable, discernible concept of what's going on on planet Earth. And they do that pretty well. But what they don't have is understanding. Because understanding is taking the war in Iraq. Understanding is taking uh, whatever you deal with in life, the political scenario, uh, gay marriages, whatever the case Understanding is able to take the facts and the wisdom and then present it from a standpoint showing you how it fits into what the Word of God says. Now, an unsaved man can have knowledge. And an unsaved man can have wisdom. But the Bible says in Job chapter 32 verse verse 8 that understanding only comes from the Holy Spirit of God. It only comes from God's Holy Spirit in your life as you take the Word of God. And you're going to find the first seven chapters... Shows you and I that if you get into the book, and you get God's heart, and you get God's mind, and you get the mind of the Spirit in Ecclesiastes, and the mind of Christ, and you see the sufferings of Christ, you will have understanding in a way that you'll be able to discern through knowledge and wisdom everything in life, no matter it's the war in Iraq, to the the problems in your home, to the problems in your job, to the problems wherever you're at in life. Because God will give you the one great ingredient that is missing today in God's people's lives, and that is understanding. The lessons on the first, the lessons on the first seven chapters are real simple. It just says this. We've got to get on here. A man that gets knowledge, wisdom, and understanding will get all the knowledge that God has, and that will protect him from the two things in the Bible that the Bible says are out to destroy you. One of them is an evil man, The second one is a strange woman. The evil man is also the foolish man. And that's the worldly philosophical concepts of this old world. Talked about in Colossians chapter 2. The strange woman is also uh, the foolish woman. She's the whorish woman found in Revelation chapter 17, Proverbs chapter 7, Proverbs chapter 5. And she represents the religious constituency that we're faced with on planet Earth. Those two issues... Or the two issues that you're going to have to deal with in life. And I'm telling you, every problem you're going to have is going to come from those two situations right there. I don't care where it is. That foolish man will encompass everything that the world wants to feed you, your kids, and your family. And that whore will represent everything that unsaved religion wants to induce into your life, your family. And all the problems of life are found in those two. And that's why the book of Proverbs tells you in Proverbs chapter 2, and we went through it in great detail not too long ago, what a great chapter that is, showing you how the Word of God, when you put it into your life, how it will protect you from the evil man and the strange woman. So when we see that, we see this. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5, 6, and 7. It says, Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of thy mouth. Forsake her not. And she shall preserve thee, love her, and she will keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Chapter 1 through chapter 7 will show you how to prepare to get God's mind. It will show you what happens in your life once you get God's mind. And it will show you in a very detailed and understandable way how that the Word of God, what it will do for you in your life. And I'm telling you, The first seven chapters are unbelievable as far as what they contain about your own personal relationship with God, your own personal relationship in teaching the Word of God, and all the concepts that you have to have to face the issues of life. And then we come in chapter 8 through chapter 29. Oh man, I mean, uh, all these chapters deal with literally hundreds, if not thousands, of bits of truth. That all form doctrines on the issues of life. Some of the greatest verses that stand alone as definitive verses are found in these chapters. Others connect with other doctrines to form great principles. And I wish, uh, I'm going to come through these chapter by chapter, and I'm going to give you it one, but I'm telling you what, don't think that that's all that is. I mean, these chapters are just loaded. I'm telling you, they are loaded. But i got to say this. If there's one word that would catalog all this great truth, this truth that will help you survive life on planet Earth, this truth that will help you raise your family, right, and get you the judgment seat of Christ with everything that God wants you to have, I can say the word in one sentence, in one word, simplistic. God takes, in these chapters, the most complicated concepts of life and makes them down into one-liners that anybody with a sixth grade education could understand. Sometimes he uses the concept of farming. Sometimes he uses the concept of kids. Sometimes he uses the concepts of animals. Some, it's, he breaks it down so simplistically that if anybody is paying attention, you could get it and understand it. But boy, I'm telling you right now, in chapter 8 through chapter 29, we have the issues of life. In chapter 8, One of the things we have, and I'm just picking out the major things here, each one, because otherwise we'll be here until Jesus comes back. But chapter 8 deals with a a perception of God's wisdom being eternal. You know, years ago, and I say years ago, hundreds of years ago, 400 A.D., which is even more than hundreds of years ago, but a long time ago, once upon a time, there was a great theological debate. The great theological debate was a man between Athanasius and Arius. Arius come up with a concept that Jesus Christ was a begotten God. Athanasia come up with a concept that no, he wasn't. And these two guys went at it, and they even had some religious councils about it. And out of the religious councils came what we have commonly called today the Apostles' Creed, which is nothing, says nothing, and it was kind of compromised between the two. But that goes to show you how that man will forsake the Bible. They'll get into issues that, have, that they shouldn't even be into because the Bible is so clear on it. Chapter 8 of the book of Proverbs shows you the great mysteries of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It shows you the person of Christ in eternity before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and shows you how that thing laid out and shows you that God Christ was not a begotten God. It shows you the eternalness of Christ in a personification of wisdom. And it's one of the greatest chapters... And I guess it's fittingly it's the first chapter that begins to deal with it because that has always been the number one issue down through the history of time was Jesus Christ God. Second issue was probably baptism. But without a doubt, the number one issue on the face of this planet down through the history of the church was the deity of Christ. And the first chapter when he opens up the great issues of life deals with that issue. In chapter 9, you've got a definition how the Holy Spirit of God works in the Old Testament through the seven spirits of God. Uh, which is talked about in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 11 and many other places. In chapter 10, you have a picture of a wise son versus a foolish son. And talks about there in verse 5 the seasons that we have on this earth. We've talked about that before. Your life and my life is built around four seasons. I'm not talking about the singing group. I'm talking about the the literal four seasons that God has put this planet around. They're there for a reason. And they're, they're incredible when you begin to study them. And you'll find that you have a season on this planet, and you're going to wind up being a wise son or a foolish son based on how you view that. In chapter 11, we have the great chapter on balance. And I've told you before that balance is the number one key in the Christian life. When I say now that you have a great chapter on that, that's really not, not exactly true because I could take probably 50 other things in that chapter and say, this is the great chapter on that. But so you understand where I'm coming from. I don't want to give you that this is the only thing that's in there. I'm just picking out something that you need to see here to show you you the consistency of this thing. But you have the great concept on balance. And yet when you come down there in verse 18, it talks about, I'll show you how to put a little thing together. It, It talks about a sure reward. A sure reward. How do you get a sure reward? How in the world do you get a sure reward? Well, you have to get a sure reward by having a balance. That balance in your Christian life will guarantee you that at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll get a sure reward. And yet, when you take that little concept and you're running through the Bible, you'll find in 2 Peter 1, verse 9 that God's given you a sure book. You'll find in 2 Peter 1, verse 10 that God's given you a sure calling. And you'll find in Proverbs chapter 11, verse eight, uh, eight, uh, 18, that God's given you a sure reward. You see, when you get a sure book, and you invest your life in that book, God will give you a calling. That calling is what God wants you to do. It won't be something that you think you should do, or I hope I'm doing right. It'll be a sure calling. And when you get a sure book that gives you a sure calling, and you do what the Word of God says, I guarantee you, that jumps you to Christ, you'll get a sure reward. You know what the key is? Balance. Balance. In chapter 12. You have the attitude toward learning. You know, I've learned this in life. I've learned this in life. You have people that fall into two categories. And I told you, basically, wise and foolish. The wise people are teachable. The foolish people are unteachable. I know people that you couldn't teach them anything about anything because they think they know it all. They're unteachable. And the thing that I look for when I spend time with anybody in the Word of God is that teachable spirit. I mean, I don't know how many times I, you know, over the years, I began to talk with somebody who had tremendous problems in their life. And five minutes into the conversation, they're telling me what they ought to do. Like, they're the expert in it. And, of course, the bottom line is simply this, my friend. Some people are unteachable. You just can't teach them anything. And you need to understand that in life, you need to look for the ones that are teachable. Teachable. We spend so much of our time, waste so much of our time, working with people who are unworkable, unteachable, and we pass up the people who want to learn. And uh, he says in verse 1, Whoso loveth instruction, loveth knowledge. But he that uh, hateth reproof is brutish. Brutish is somebody that's always in a bad mood. Always, always someone who, who always has an issue with life. Always wanting to blame their problems on somebody else, instead of just learning from the problems they have. In chapter 13, we have a great instruction on how to be wise. You want to be wise? I don't know that anybody in this world that you wouldn't... Have, now, they may not be sincere in their answer, but I can't, I've never met anybody that was a Christian that I said, do you want to be wise or do you want to be an idiot? I've never had anybody said, yeah, I want to be an idiot. Now, a lot of them wind up being idiots. But I've never had anybody be honest enough to tell me, yes, Bob, I just want to be an idiot. And you know what? <clears throat> I mean, if you go to, if you'll go to the great minds of this world and ask about how to get wisdom, they'd give you this. This guy over here would say, well, come to my Bible college. This guy over here would say, well, do this, do that, buy my book, get my tapes. You know what the Bible says? There isn't one single book. There isn't one single place you can go. There isn't anything that you can do for a quick fix to get wisdom. You know what the greatest book in the world, and the book of Proverbs, that gives you God's mind, told you how to be wise? He says it in verse 20. He simply says this. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. But a companion of fools shall be destroyed. You know what he simply said? Now that's what I mean how simplistically it is. You want to be wise? You walk with men and women that are wise. You want to be a fool? Just still hang out with the crowd you're hanging out with. I mean, it is so basic and so simple. Wise men hang out with wise men and idiots hang out together with idiots. And I don't know how else to say it. And of course, there we find Psalms chapter 1 so clearly. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And a companion of fools shall be destroyed. So basic, so simple. You want to be wise? Start hanging out with the guys that, it, it, it comes down to a great principle that you can spin off in a many different ways. You are who you hang out with. Just simple as that. You are who you hang out with. It's as simple as that. I don't know how else to say it. You may not like that. You may not agree with it. But you know what? By the time you're 40 or 50, 60 years old and your life is so upside down and a mess that you can't even go back and fix it, you'll come to the reality what I was saying was true. Call me then. You can say you're sorry. It's all right. No problem. (laughs) Chapter 14. What a great chapter on a mother, how she should build her house. This connects with chapter 9. He says in verse 1, every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh down with her hands. You know what that says? That goes back to that concept about the instruction of a father and the law of the mother. That goes back to chapter 9 that talks about the seven pillars of God over there. Oh, I'm telling you, it begins to connect the chain down through here. If you want to build your house and build your family and train your kids right, if you're a young couple out there saying, hey, I don't want to make a mistake, I want to do what's right, I'm telling you, the book of Proverbs is the place to go. And you can put that stuff together and it becomes an incredible concept. Chapter 15. Great concept on the investment of your life. Here he says in verse 6, In the house of the righteous is much treasure, but in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. You know what that verse simply says? Your life this morning, my life this morning, is nothing more than what you've invested it in. Your life and my life this morning is nothing more than what what you have invested it in. I mean, it's incredible. We all make investments in life. That's what life's all about. I mean, uh, for your financial security, you make investments. You make stupid investments or no investments, you'll wind up 65, broke, and living on the street. You know what? It's not anybody's fault but yours. You have the responsibility to make wise choices in everything in life. That's why God gave you the Word of God to help make those choices. And whoever you are today, whoever you are, it is based on... and And I start talking like this... You young Christians that have just been coming for a short while, I'm not even talking to you. I need to clarify that because you're the ones that take it to heart the most and you go out here beating yourself up. You're doing what I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people who've been around 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 15, 20, 25, by 30, 35, by 40, 45, by 50. Ready or not, here I come. That's what I'm talking about. Your life today and my life today is nothing more than the investment that we've made in it. In chapter 16, oh, hey, this is a great chapter, a great concept on when you prepare your heart, God prepares your tongue. I gave this to Marion the other night. He was over here and we were talking about going through some things in the Bible. And he was telling me about you know, some of the things he gets into at work. And I said, well, let me give you a verse. Let me give you, this is a verse for you. And this is a verse for every young Christian here today. Because he says in 16.1, the preparation of the heart in man... And the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You know what that's saying? It's saying you take the time and put your heart right, and God will take the time and give you what to say when it's time to say it. In other words, you'll speak out of your mouth what you put in your heart. Boy, isn't that true! Isn't that the truth? In chapter 17, a great chapter on training children. Not just your kids, but it's your grandkids i got some news for you. I know I'll harp on a lot about your kids and everything like that. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, the real test of your spiritual relationship and doing what's right is not your kids. It's your grandkids. I mean, it is your kids. But I mean, the real test of it is your grandkids. I mean, it, the, he says, children's children are the glory of old men. Children's children are the glory of old men. And I'm telling you right now, that's the true litmus test. I mean, your kids can be good, can be, and do everything down the line. But the real judgment isn't in, the real jury isn't in till the grandkids are raised. That shows you because that thing happens to go through. I can't tell you. I, I don't have time this morning to go through that generation concept. That generation concept in the Bible is one of the most unbelievable things you have ever seen in your life. That's why the Bible says that it isn't just your children, though they should be what they need to be, but it's your grandchildren because in the Bible there is a generation concept that is unbelievable. Chapter 18. Great chapter on how to deal with unsaved people. You see, the Bible doesn't get into all the big special technical things that you're taught today. The Bible just simply says three questions you can ask them. That any unsaved man, if he's any way honest or not, he's got to answer. If he answers no on any one of them, you've got something to deal with him on. I wish we had time to go through with it this morning, but we don't. But boy, the Bible's filled with it. Chapter 19, one of the great Bible principles on the heart of man and all the Bible. This is the definitive verse. Verse 21, there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. Wow, what a great verse that is. That lines right up with Romans chapter 1. Chapter 20, the great chapter on the spirit in man. We have a body, soul, and spirit, the Bible says. But in verse 27, the Bible says, The spirit of the man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. It gives you whole insight. And I'll tell you, if there's anything that's screwed up today, as far as men understanding the body, soul, and spirit concept, it's the fact that they don't even know what in the world they're talking about from the Bibles defining it the way the Bible lays it out. Then he goes on in chapter 21, another great Bible principle. Verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the river of waters he turneth it whithersoever he will so many times we get afraid because of the people that are in power that may not agree with us many times we get afraid and many times you're told to vote based on the uh, the uh, things that will do you the best you know and i'm not i'm not here to tell you how to vote don't want to tell you how to vote don't care how you vote but i'm just telling you this the biblical principle says it doesn't matter who's in power Doesn't matter how rotten he is, how good he is. The truth of the matter is when it comes down to politics and politicians and whoever, for whatever race, whether it's governor, president, the thing you've got to, and I've never been able to see this. I never be able to see why they can't understand this. I mean, the bottom line is this. In politics, everybody's crooked. I don't care who you are. You say, well, so-and-so is a Christian. Well, then he's a crooked Christian if he's, a, if he's in politics because you can't stand a line with the Bible the way it should be and get elected for anything in this country. Now you better just put that in your pipe and smoke it because some of you do anyhow so it doesn't make any difference. It'll go along with some of the other stuff you're smoking. But I'm telling you, that's the bottom line. That's the whole concept. The whole thing is crooked. But the Bible says the thing that I fall back on is that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. No matter who the king is, and as the rivers of waters, he turneth it. God does, whethersoever He will. You saw it with Cyrus. You saw it with Nebuchadnezzar. You saw it with Abimelech. You saw it all the way down the Bible that it didn't matter who he was, how wicked he was. That the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. That king may not even recognize God. He may not even he may hate God. Makes absolutely no difference. He does what God's spirit. Tells him to do. Chapter 22. Oh, a great definitive verse on training up your child. We've talked about it before. Won't spend a lot of time on it this morning. Train up a child in the way he should go. That goes back to Psalms 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly, or, counsel the ungodly, or standeth in the way of sinners. You train him in the right way, they won't walk the wrong way. And when he is always will, not part from it. Great concept, great concept. Chapter 23, a great definitive verse on history. You'll find where it says, Remove not the the old landmarks, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. In fact, you'll find it in chapter 23. You'll also find it again in chapter 22, verse 28. You say, why twice? Because there's two landmarks. One for the Old Testament, one for the New Testament. Chapter 24, great chapter on spiritual warfare. Book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Verse 6, he says, for by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war. And in multitude of counselors there is safety. It simply shows you to pick your battles. You only have so much energy to expound. And you better make sure the battles you fight are biblical battles. Don't waste a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of God's money fighting things that God doesn't want you to fight. And you do that by wise counsel. You say, this oh, mean, all the preachers get together and talk about it? No, no. The Bible says, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. I had a guy one time expound that verse for 5,000 people. He said, the Bible says, in the multitude of counselors, there's, there's safety. When I have a tough decision to make, I call brother so-and-so over here, and I call brother so-and-so over here, and I have called brother so-and-so back here, good godly men, and I'll tell you what, there is safety in the multitude of counselors. Well, I don't buy that for a minute. I don't think he was talking about that at all. I got a book that got 66 counselors in it. When i got to make war, I'll go there before I'll call you. I mean, it's so simple. I don't know why we can't figure it out. Oh, I know why. We don't want to. That's it. That's it. Write that down, Rose. I want to use that later. I know why. But we don't want to. Then chapter 25, a great verse on spiritual maturity and spiritual leadership. One that I look for in any leader that I ever put in any position. One thing that I look for in somebody, and uh, it it cannot be a negotiable item. It simply says this, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Your emotions, as a leader in any kind of church, any kind of ministry, whatever the case may be, your emotions have to come last. The work of God has to come first. Simple as that. Great definitive concept. Chapter 26, great principle on dealing with people. He says in verse 4 and 5, it looked like a contradiction. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like him. Then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Contradiction. One says, don't do it. Next verse says, do do it. Somebody says, well, there's a contradiction for you. No, 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 no. You see, you don't have any understanding. You don't have any wisdom. I'm not even sure you'll find your way home this afternoon. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about in people, there's two kinds of fools. There is some fool that when he asks a question, I realize that his heart is good, and he's probably searching, but he's just a fool. He doesn't have any wisdom, he doesn't have any understanding, but he's sincere. And even though the question he asked me is absolutely stupid. I sense by the Holy Spirit of God that he's looking for truth. So I'm not going to come down on him. I'm not going to ridicule him. I'm not going to drag out the howitzers and blow him out of the water. I'm going to deal with him based on where he's at and see how he responds to light. There's another kind of fool you can't get anywhere with. He doesn't want truth. He's unteachable. You have one fool that's teachable, one fool that's unteachable. This guy, all he wants to do is just, is just look for openings, look for weaknesses. All he wants to do is argue. All he wants to do is, is stir up strife. All he wants to do is come into your church, come into your Bible study, come into your world, and just find one person in there that may look like they're confused, and then he'll target them out in the parking lot and try to work them over. Those, you get out the shotgun, you load up a double-edged buck, and you blow him into the next world. You take him the task on the Word of God, and when you're done with him, he looks like Swiss cheese. You don't give him any quarter. You don't give him anything. You realize what you're dealing with. You realize you're dealing with a fool that is unteachable, that has one goal in mind, and that is to destroy the work that God has called you to protect. Now, it takes the ability of the Holy Spirit of God to know when to do this and when to do this. But it comes in time. Chapter 27. Probably the greatest principle in all the Bible on true friendship. True friendship. True friendship. He says in verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kiss of an enemy are deceitful. Notice the kiss of an enemy, like Absalom, like Judas. And the faithfulness of friend. I mean, I, and, and, and I know this is true. I know at in, in, in the end of your life, end of my life, a man is fortunate if he has five or six truly good friends that he can trust with his life. And I know that everybody talks about being friends with everybody and all of this and that. And I understand it. I understand. But you know what? It doesn't matter what you say. it's a matter matter what you do. And the Bible says faithfulness are the wounds of a friend. You know what a real friend does? A real friend will take the hit for you. And maybe you ever know about taking a hit. You know, I got a... Y'all, most of you all know Mel Sabaka. And he's my father in the Lord. And, and him and I have been close all of our lives. And he's probably... <laughs> The best definition of, a, of I know what a friend should be. And I'll never forget one time, all down through our relationship, which goes back about 30-some years, all back through our relationship, there have been people that try to divide us. There were people that were jealous of my relationship with him. There was people that didn't like me. People that didn't like him, like me. And there was always people coming down through the line trying to divide us. And we never talked about it. We never said, you know, we never cut our wrists and put our blood together and said we're blood brothers and all that, you know. We just grew up in the book together. I had respect. He was my father and the Lord. I don't care what he says. I give him the right to chew me out anytime, place, anywhere, in front of anybody. And he has. He can't do anything that would make me mad at him. And I'll never forget one time. And I never forgot this. And it, it, it showed me this great concept. And it, it, one time, somebody, years ago, was trying to get me against him. And I can't remember the circumstances. They didn't like me or were mad at me or mad at him or whatever. And they were trying to put us at odds. And the guy called him up and he said, Well, brother, I just want you to know, you think Bob Alexander is your friend. He said, Well, let's, let me tell you what he said about you. And then he said, it. I don't even remember what it was. Mel's response was, well, you know what? I guess if Bob said it, it must be true. Now, where do you go with that answer? What is left to say? You know what he did? He took the hit. He took the hit. He didn't fly off the handle emotionally and say, well, he said that about me. Well, I'll tell you some things about. No, 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 no. He's more mature than that. He had a rule of his own spirit. He took the hit. You know what, that's what a true friend does, takes the hit. That's what it says. It says faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's somebody that took the hit for their friend. That's what it is. A true friend protects your back, and if he has to, he takes the hit. I mean, the Secret Service, they're trained from day one to jump in front of a bullet for a president. But they get paid to do it. A real friend from the Bible standpoint won't even think about doing it. He'll just do it because it's part of the process of growing in the Lord with someone who has given you the Bible or loved you or you love them and you have a relationship together and you know what? You've come to the point where there is nothing. There is nobody. There is no circumstance. Big, little or small. Stupid or indifferent or monumental. that will come in between that friendship simply because the faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now the doctrinal application of that is Christ. He is my friend and He was wounded for my transgressions. He took the hit for me. You know what my job should be? Take the hit for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Simple. Simple. Then, chapter 28, a great principle, great standalone verse. Wow. Boy, there are so many of them here. A great standalone verse for the United States of America. Wow, what a verse. It says down there in verse 5, evil men understand not judgment. See that thing? Evil men don't have any understanding. They got facts, they got wisdom, but they don't understand judgment. Dan Rather, he can't get it. Tom Brokaw ain't got a clue. Bill O'Reilly, couldn't figure it out if his life depended on it. Rush Limbaugh, never happened. You know why? Because they that seek the Lord understand all things, that's why. You see, understanding comes from the Holy Spirit of God. So the world, unsaved and save people without understanding, they look at AIDS and they think it's just a real blight in our society. They don't understand how it runs back through the Bible and how it's judgment on sodomites in the Old Testament. See? You don't understand that. And some of God's people don't like that. Some of God's people don't like that. You know what? I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. I'm gonna stick with the book. That's God's judgment. Some people thinking nine. I remember, I remember, I remember nine one one. You know, there were preachers that talked about that nine one one was God's judgment on this planet. And I mean to tell you, the absolute world went into a tizzy. Our American world. I mean, everybody on the planet and from America was upset and in armed because how could you say? How could you be so cruel to say that a great loving God could come down and crash two planes and kill three thousand people? In this great country, how in the world could you say that? I would say that because the Bible says that. Talk to Noah. Talk to the guy up there, if he has time, who's beating on the door as the rain's coming down, and say, sir, I'd like to interview you. Why are you here? And what are your thoughts? I want in the boat! What about that old man preached for hundreds-some years? God's judgment was coming. Wouldn't I see you on CNN that night saying, God's judgment don't come, don't be crazy about that old man over there? You know what? know what his problem is? It's the same problem the world's got. No understanding. No understanding. No understanding. Evil men don't understand judgment. They don't understand what war is. Why there's been war from time and eternity. There was a time when Jesus said, you don't need a sword. And you better pay attention to this. There's a time in the Gospels when He says, don't take a sword. And then there's another time when he says, sell your garment and buy one. You better understand what falls on both sides of that. You better understand. If you put that in a new modern translation, he'd say, don't bother getting a handgun. And then the next verse he says, get you a big magnum with a 20-round capacity clip and five or 6,000 rounds of ammo and a laser sight and claymores Keep those neighbor kids out of your yard. <laughs> they don't understand it. Hell. Hell's God's judgment on sin in the afterlife. War? It's God's judgment on sin in this life. They don't understand it. You know why? Because evil men understand not judgment. But they that seek the Lord understand all things. In chapter twenty nine. Oh, what a great, great verse, great principle this is. It says, Wherefore there is where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now I've heard all my life that used as <clears throat> I have heard all my life that used in the sense of and it's a true sense that God's people need a vision, and they do. You know there's great parallels between Pastors and parents. You realize that a pastor and a parent, they deal with the same issues, just on different levels. And I know everybody likes the verse, Where is there is no vision? Verse 18, the people perish. But the verse before that says, Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give the light unto thy soul. That thing is not talking about giving a vision to God's people, it's talking about giving a vision to your son or your daughter. You know what a parent's job is? You just provide vision for your child. Child doesn't have a vision. He did not have a vision at all. He doesn't have a clue what is out in life and it's the parent's job from the book of Proverbs and the Bible to, to prepare and lay out a vision for that child. If you don't give him a vision, he'll sit in front of the television and he'll get his own vision. If you don't give him the vision, the kids at school will, his science teacher will, the kids that he's running around with will, somebody will give him the vision. A vision is from a parent to a child just like a pastor in a church stands and gives vision to the people of what their life should be, what they should do. They're the same issues, they're just on different levels. When you give a child, of, and I don't know if you know it or not, but you go back in the Old Testament and there's a whole passage that tells you exactly how to lay out, how to do it. I'm not just saying, give a vision. I'm telling you the Bible tells you that, and then takes you someplace else in the Old Testament and tells you exactly step by step by step by step how to do it. Some of you have, some of you haven't. I don't know what else to tell you. The vision develops his mind. The vision the division shapes his will. The vision brings him to the place where it molds his spirit and his soul. And as you take the promise of the Bible and the concepts of the Bible and provide that vision for your child, it brings him to the place or her to the place where they have a value system to make decisions because they have a vision to identify it with. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. This book of Proverbs, if you're raising your kid, I'm telling you right now, if you got a little baby and you're trying to raise that kid, or that kid is three or four or five or six, get him while you still can. Get her while you still can. I'm telling you, you need to learn. If that means you come over and sit down at my house and I tell you how to do it, I'll show you how to do it, I don't care. You need to learn how to provide a vision for that child that you shape his mind, mold his will, and bring him into concepts that give him the vision that God wants him to have or he'll get the ones his friends want him to have. I, don't, I, I just don't. I, you know what? I, I don't know, man. I just. It's, it's so easy. It's so easy. Then we come to the last two chapters. We've got to stay on schedule here. The last two chapters. And I'm doing good. I am. I've got another hour to go here. And I've got plenty of time. We're, chapter 30. When you see chapter 30 and 31, we've just now come through the chapter 8 through chapter 29, we have seen the issues of life. I just gave you a taste of them. I showed you how that they, they're great concepts, the eternal concepts. Some of them are standalone verses that lay everything out. Some of them you have to build in, or some of them you connect back and forth. But in there is everything that you need for the issues of life, no matter where they show up. And he told you in the first seven chapters, if you do this, you can get this, and then when you come to chapter 30 and 31, you get the end result. You get the picture of the strange woman, the whorish woman, the foolish woman, the foolish man, and you get the virtuous woman, the godly man. And you've got to remember now that in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. And it's personified as a woman because it's a picture of the church. But in chapter 30... You have the whorish woman, the strange woman, the foolish woman. She's connected with Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Connected with the Antichrist and the Babylon mystery religion. Her characteristics are taught all the way through the Bible. You can sum her up, go different places, and you get a complete picture. The Bible says she's sloppy. She's messy. She's a busybody. She's slothful. She's prideful. She comes to the place where she's always gossips. She slanders. She's busy about the things of God but never with the real things of God and she loses her family to the world. That woman is taught all the way down through the book of Proverbs and you can go through all the Bible and lay out those concepts and put those things together. It's an incredible, it it, it just never ends. The book of Proverbs is an incredible book to lay those things out. She has no time for God. She has no need for the things of God. She's busy doing her worldly things. Chapter 31, you have the virtuous woman. Historically, she's a real woman. One of Solomon's wives. And yet, when you start to look at that thing, it's an incredible concept. You realize that Solomon, it gives you you new light onto Solomon's collection. You know, he collected women. He had a thousand of them. But verse 10 says, who can find a virtuous woman? I mean, when you come down through this chapter, you come to the conclusion that Solomon is looking for a virtuous woman. And you know what? He had a thousand. And he had a thousand. And out of a thousand, he only found one. And yet the Bible says that her, her price was far above rubies. And yet, when you look at that thing and you, and you, and you put it together and you study it, you have to understand that this woman's price was far above rubies because she's a pearl. She's the pearl of great price, talked about in Matthew. Now I don't know if you know it or not, but you can take a diamond and cut it in half and have two diamonds. You can take a ruby and cut it in half and have two rubies. You can take an emerald and cut it in half and have two emeralds. But if you take a pearl and cut it in half, both halves die because a pearl is a living thing. And its price is far above rubies. And then, if you really want to get into it, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, when he found this virtuous woman, she was a black gal. What about that? She was black. She said, I'm black! You know, out of all the pearls that you can find, the rarest pearl is a black pearl. I asked a guy one time at a gem and diamond show place one time, you know, about black pearls, and I asked him how rare they were. You know what he told me? Honest to goodness. You know what he told me? He said, oh, about one in a thousand. I said, amen. He said, what did you say? And I said, never mind. (laughs) You know why she's black? You know why it's a black pearl? You know why the first man saved in the Bible like you and I are saved is a black Ethiopian eunuch? I'll tell you why. Because when you get saved, you're to be a bond slave. No rights. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So historically, it's a real woman. Doctrinally, it's Israel. Inspirationally, it's you and me, the church. And this thing is a picture of what you and I, male or female, mom or dad, husband or wife, what you and I, as the body of Christ, a woman... Will be after we take Proverbs chapter 1 through 7 and investigate it, and in 8 through 29 and apply it. The end result one in a thousand. The reality of how few people really care about God and build a relationship with God. You know what? In the New Testament time, it was one out of 12, you had 12 apostles. One was a phony. Three went a little farther than the other, but only one went all the way. One out of 12. Here it's one out of a 1,000. Now you know what? Given the small contingency there and the large contingency here, it probably, probably averages out. That's about what? Right. Nobody cares about God today. Nobody does. Nobody does. You know what we do in our lives? After we've done, done everything we want to do and we have all the fun we want to have, we give God what's left. And if there's anything left, we just say, sorry, God. My fun time is more important. My doing this, my doing that, my, my, my late night excursions are more important than, 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 than doing it, giving you anything. What I'm buying myself and doing for me, that's about right. It's about one another. Nobody today wants to really build a relationship with God. I'm not saying people don't go to church. But they go to church when they ain't got a better deal. I mean, let's face it. Let's get honest about it. I mean, I, 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 this thing is I, I watch this thing all the time. I watch it across the country. You know what? It's the hardest thing in the world is to find people that are committed to doing what God wants to do. And I don't blame you. Boy, I can't run competition without the worlds out there. Why, the chiefs are already starting warming up down there. Oh, they already started to play. I'm surprised somebody doesn't have a radio turn on and have it in your ear. I mean, we get so caught up in all that we want to do and everything that we do and all the things that we accomplish. You know what? And when we're done, let's face it, let's be honest, and I'm talking about me just as much as you. When we're done, we simply say, okay, God, I had my week and I've done everything I wanted to do. Well, not quite everything, but I'll get the rest of it later. Oh, I wish I could have done that. And oh, I really wanted to do this. But you know what? I just didn't have time to do it. And, oh, by the way, here, let me give you what's left. Let me give you what's left. And then we wonder why our lives are the way they are. Who can find a virtuous woman? Not many, one in a thousand. Look at verse 11 and 12. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her. Let me ask you a question. You know what? I've heard ever since I was a young Christian. How God's people can't trust, having a tough time. I just really, I'm having a tough time trusting God in this, brother. You know what? I just, I really wanted to save God, but I'm just, I'm afraid to trust him. You know what the issue is? The issue is never afraid to trust God. The issue is, can God trust us? That's the issue. That's the issue. Can God trust you with anything that he wants to give you? Have you done what's right with what God has given you? Verse 13 says, She seeketh wool and flocks and worketh willingly with her hands. That reminds me of Rebecca back in Genesis chapter 24 when, when they're looking for a bride, for Isaac. And he says, Well, I'm going to hang out down by the well and I'm going to find me a woman down here. And he was, knew exactly what he was looking for. He was looking for a woman that would willingly work with her hands. And there he finds her down there at the well. Picture of the church with the water. Picture of the Word of God. Feeding the animals. Working hard. This woman works hard. She realizes that uh, there's some things that she has to get done. She has a sure calling. She has a sure book. Now by the time you get to the end of the chapter, she has a sure reward. Look at verse 14. She is like the merchants, merchant ships. She bringeth her food from afar. She knows what she has to offer. Wasn't made on planet earth. Wasn't put together by men. But it's settled in heaven, and it came from a long way. God sent it down supernaturally. And she understands what she has. And she understands what it is. Look at verse 15. She rises also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. Wow. Rises while it's night. Picture the church age. Giveth meat to her household. Now this fits as a man or a woman. I know it says a woman, but it's us as the body of Christ. You can take it as a mom, take it as a dad, take it as a single individual, take it as a, I mean, however you want to take it. It's talking about us, but all those things will fall down on your head wherever they lie. Rises while it is night. Church age, giveth meat to her household, then portions to her others. You see, the thing that makes her virtuous is she understands where her first ministry is. It's with her household. You have no business preaching anywhere else if you're not pe- preaching to your family, taking care of them. And I don't mean, you know, I, for years and years, and I, I grew up in the era, you know, of family devotions, you know. And I, I've heard it all my life. I, I, I've heard it all my life, you know, family altar. You need to sit around and have time where you, where you, you, you take time in the Bible and all of those things. And, and I'll tell you the truth. I think that the reason why, the reason why that so many of God's people have lost their kids and so many kids are out in the world and so many of God's people are so shallow today across this Christian world of ours is simply because that was the worst advice anybody could ever give them. You know what? It isn't about sitting down and reading the Bible to your kids. It isn't about sitting down, having family devotion, putting some little scrappy thing together that shows them principles. And I'm all for that. But you know what? It isn't about that. It's about living family devotions. It's not just about saying it and then going out and doing what you want to do. It's about saying it and living it. It's about living family devotions. I heard all my life where they stood up and then they said, You ought to have your family all or you're going to lose your kids. And I knew guys that read their Bibles and count their Bibles and sat down at And every night before they went to bed, sat down, kid, just opened the thing up and went through the Word of God and they still lost their kids. You know why? Because those same guys were reading it, but they weren't living it. Devotions aren't something you do to your family. They're something you live with your family. Now, I ain't saying it's always going to be perfect. I'm not going to say there ain't times when you don't disagree and don't fight and you don't have problems back and forth. Sure, I'm not trying to paint this picture of a rosy life where the kids just are always perfect and the wife and the husband relationship is always perfect. You all got ball baths with your names on them. (laughs) But you know what I'm talking about. Verse 16. Oh, wow. I could just spend the whole time on this. She considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. She considereth a field and buyeth it. Let me talk to you about this field. Matthew chapter 13. The Bible says the field is the world. The Bible says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God bought the world. He bought the field. But you notice this down here in verse 16? It doesn't say the field. It says a field. You and I can't win the whole world to Christ. God never called us to. That's what He did. But God asked us to consider a field. Our field's Kansas City. And I don't think some of you still get this. I really don't. And in time, you probably will. But she considereth the field. I look at that. She considereth it. She weighed all the options. She looked at her busy schedule, all that she had to do. She laid all the things out and she buy it. She she the Bible says she considered the field and buyeth it. You know what? God never asked me to buy the world. But God asked me to take a particular field within this world, wherever God sent me. And now you know I'm not gonna buy all the world. That little field that God asked me to buy called Kansas City, I have to buy it with all the intensity that Christ had when He bought the world. And I'm telling you, at some point in your life, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to begin to understand why you're here. And I know a lot of you are young, a lot of you are growing, a lot of you are coming along, and I'm not even talking to you. I'm talking about we need to understand what our job is, and we need to decide. If we're going to buy the field or we're just going to drive around and look at the for sale signs. She considers the field and by that Jesus bought the whole world for me. It's a commitment to the place that I know that you know what? Everything I eat, sleep and drink is going into buying that field. Not the field, the field that God has given us here. And we look and understand that that's our job. That's our job. Buying a field. Buying a field. And then it says this. She considereth a field and buyeth it with the fruit of her hands. She planteth a vineyard. You know what a vineyard is? It's a field with a lot of trees in it. It can be grape trees, apple trees, any kind of trees. But you know how that field gets turned into a vineyard? It starts with a man who says, that's my field. And he looks at that field and he says, I'm going to buy that field and I'm going to turn that thing into a vineyard. And then the first thing he does before he ever plants anything, he clears the field. It's got a lot of things in it that keep you from planting. It's got rocks. It's got dead things, wood. It's got stumps. It's got stuff that you've got to clear out of there. And boy, that is back-breaking work before you ever plant the first tree. There's a lot of work goes in for anything you build for God. But anything you build for God, my friend, only comes after you clear the ground and clear the field, and then it only comes one tree at a time. You ever notice those trees over there in Genesis? They were seed-bearing trees, had a seed within themselves. That's what you do. You win one person to Christ. They bring a brother, sister, mom, dad, another friend, This person comes, this person comes, this person gets saved, and one at a time, when you've committed to buy the field, you're committed to plant trees in that field. How many are tree planters? That's the name of the game. Saying, you know what? I'm gonna plant a tree. I'm gonna find, I'm gonna ask God for somebody to help me influence for the cause of Christ to put them in this vineyard. That's where it comes. You don't build a church by just saying, okay, we got a building, here we are, everybody come. No, no, no. The work is clearing the field and then planting it one tree at a time. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Verse 17 says, she girdeth her loins with strength. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 says, her loins are girded about with truth. Verse 18 says, she perceiveth her merchandise is good, her candle never goeth out. Her relationship with God is paramount. Nothing takes its place. There isn't anything in this world that she would take for what she has with God. Verses 19 and 20. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She's a good witness. She understands the concept of giving herself to God. Taking what out of the abundance that she has, not just money, but all the things that God has given her, the abilities that she has, and she stretches out her hand to the poor and to the needy. Then verse 21, wow. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. You know, I don't know how many times I've had a young couple say to me, you know, we want to have kids. But I'm just afraid to bring kids into this world. We we talked about having kids and we talked about having children. But you know what? The time is so wicked. And I see things in school and society and I just I'm just really afraid, you know, to bring bring kids into this world. Well let me just say this to you. Don't be afraid of the snow. You know why this woman is not afraid of the snow? You know why this woman is not afraid of the winter? Because she did the work while summer was here. You know, one time Paul was talking to Timothy, or whatever, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 21, and he said simply this, he's in prison. And he made one of the most, I think, the amazing statements that carries so much with it, but it looks just like a... Flippant statement. You know what he says to Timothy? He says, "Do thy diligence to come before winter." Psalms chapter one says, "And he should be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his seasons." We have four seasons. We have fall. We have summer. We have spring. We have winter. You know they're there for a reason. You know the great principle is: there's some things you better do before winter comes. You realize the older a person gets, the harder it is to win him to Christ. You know why? Because their seasons get over. You know, just like there's four seasons out there and you go look at the Ecclesiastes and it puts all those things together and you go back to the book of Proverbs and put it all together, you realize just like that God gave you four seasons on this earth, you've got four seasons in your physical life. The first season you got is the season of life. You're born in the springtime. You grow up into the summer. It's in the summer when you're playing softball. It's in the summer when you're athletic. Then you go into the fall, and then winter comes. You can't do the things you used to do anymore. Can't play ball. Can't climb mountains. Just like an apple tree can't bring apples in February. An 80-year-old man can't climb mountains. Like, and I'll tell you something else you can't do. You can't carry the gospel like you could when it was summertime. God help us not to climb more mountains, hit more softballs than we do with what God gives us in summertime. There's a season to your life. And I'll tell you something else, too. There's a season to your kids. Your kids start out little and young. That's their spring, summer, springtime. That's the time you begin to do the work. All planning has to be done in spring so that the end of summer the fruit can come before the winter gets here where there's no raising any fruit. You take a family that comes to the point where they don't do that right. You know what? There comes a time in their children's lives where well, you can't reach them anymore. They don't listen to you anymore. They do their own thing. You know why? Wintertime. Wintertime. Season to your life. Season to your kids. I'll tell you something else. There's a season to your ministry. Bible says bringeth forth his fruit in his season.